Pride Nation 101. Welcome to Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives. From Highway 101 to the world. I'm Roland Corey Medina. And I'm Chad Oliver Swimmer, coming to you from the unceded land, now known as Casper, California. Welcome. At the time of this recording, Chad was away visiting family in Washington, which means you are stuck with me. I'm going to be talking to a local student tonight about their transition and whether or not they received sufficient support from their parents. I'm also going to dive a little bit into my past and show you why this decade it is still necessary for you to fully have your child back. As always, we'll take some breaks every once in a while so I can show you some of the songs that help me keep my peace. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. It is officially December. Now, December can either be the best month of the year or the worst. It's freezing, the days are short, and you got to deal with all this holiday planning. Or you can fall in love with the weather and the coziness and the holiday joy and spirit. Now, for me, this time of year has always been pretty rough. I had the worst mental issues come to head, and my dog died. And to top it all off, I strongly dislike celebrating Christmas because something bad happens every single year. But I'm starting to see it in a new light because I'm getting cut open a week from now. I am getting top surgery, which is something I've been waiting for for years. And this is something that I know will drastically change my life for the better, even if it doesn't feel like it will. When I first scheduled it, I was not excited and I was not jumping for joy. It was the exact opposite, actually. I was mad that it took so long and I was mad that I had to remove a part of my body to be comfortable, more importantly. I was annoyed too because I have to drive hours and hours to get to the place and I got to take time off work and spend a couple days completely useless and nearly immobile after the initial surgery and then weeks or months healing out completely because this is a major, major surgery. And I was and still am so unhappy that this perfectly good body of mine is incapable of rendering me content. And it sucks to not be okay with your own body and everybody in the world can relate to this, to not being happy with your body. Obviously, no one can relate to this specific sentiment like trans people can, but that's fine. Everyone's discomfort is valid and should be something they are actively working on. For a while, I never even wanted to tell anyone I was going to get this operation done. I didn't feel like I owed it to this vessel of mine. I felt like I was going to let people say their goodbyes, like their goodbyes to the old me. But it's not a matter of old and new. It never was. I've just been plagued with very real hatred towards my body and myself, and now I get a chance to get rid of it. My procedure is called a double mastectomy, and it's where breast tissue and fat is being removed from both breasts. You may have heard of breast cancer patients getting mastectomies, or maybe a more rare instance where a male patient says they got a mastectomy to fix gynecomastia, which is when the male chest develops breast tissue. I actually thought about lying to the people around me and telling them that the surgery was for that specific condition, which is pretty ridiculous, I know. But you gotta know, I have a hard time telling people that I am trans. 
and going into detail about what I plan to do with my body. Which is a bit ironic, considering that I pitch in for the radio once a month, but at least then I have three weeks to mentally prepare. I started telling myself that trans bodies are beautiful, that scars are beautiful, especially if they serve a reminder of how far you've come to become the person you are today. And I don't have a problem with scars, I never have. I used to want those giant cool ones like some of the more like brutish warrior characters I saw in cartoons. In a way, I kind of am getting those scars, those war wounds. It's a nice way to think about it. Now, I'd like to tell you about two men. Their names are Lawrence Michael Dillon and Louis Graydon Sullivan. They have been coined the world's first transsexual man and the first gay trans man, respectively. Now, Michael Dillon lived from... 1915 to 1962. He grew up in England and went to St. Anne's College in Oxford, which is a women's college, but he was more comfortable dressing and acting like a man. He eventually fled from Bristol, where he was working at the time, after people found out that he had been taking oral testosterone tablets in 1941. A year later, he received one of the first, if not the first, double mastectomies to masculinize his chest. Then, in 1945, he connected with a plastic surgeon famous for performing reconstructive phalloplasties for injured vets. 1945 seems so far away in the past, it is almost unbelievable to me that people were able to get sex reassignment surgeries at that time, or let's call them SRS. And it makes sense that this one was considered the first. Lou Sullivan lived from 1951 to 1991. He was born in Milwaukee and moved to San Francisco in 1975 to start hormone replacement therapy. He started living as a gay man, but even though he wanted SRS, he was denied a bunch of times. This is because in the 70s, your sexuality could block you from gender-conforming operations because it was believed that transgender people should take on traditional societal roles, which of course means you can't sleep with a guy and be one at the same time, obviously. (laughs) Sullivan was able to get a double mastectomy in 1980 after helping Pioneer to reverse this thinking and push surgeons and staff to treat homosexual trans patients. He also got bottom surgery in 1986, but unfortunately died of AIDS-related complications in 1991. In one of his works, he wrote, quote, I took a certain pleasure in informing the gender clinic that even though their program told me I could not live as a gay man, it looks like I'm going to die like one, end quote. And that is one of the hardest things I've ever read. Now I'm actually starting to get excited. I get to feel happy about my scars, and then I can get tattoos or piercings or do anything else I can to make this body mine. And I get to rebuild myself kind of like a Lego. (laughs) Although Chad's basically going to have to baby me for a couple weeks. And speaking of Chad, he actually sent over some ramblings about Thanksgiving while he's in Washington with his family. Let's see what he has to say. So in the spirit of the season, I thought I would want to give you my turkey story. And I have cooked a lot of turkeys. As any self-respecting queer kitchen dude would tell you, this is an important thing to know how to do. And probably everybody else would agree that if you are not a vegan, you need to know how to cook a turkey if you want to impress family and you spend half your life in the kitchen. So I would also like to start this off with a little trigger warning with this This short monologue could trigger some people and you might want to be careful if you've ever had an eating disorder or if you don't like to hear about animals getting slaughtered. So 
I'm going to back up to my first turkey because, as I said, I've cooked a lot of turkeys. I may have cooked more turkeys than just about anybody I know. I did the math recently. I'm 55. The first turkey I cooked, I was 22, so that's 33 years ago. And I've cooked a Thanksgiving turkey every year since then, which means 33 turkeys, except I've cooked a lot of other turkeys and many times three turkeys in a year. So I'm probably getting up to 75 or 100 turkeys in my life. A number of Thanksgivings, I cooked two turkeys because I couldn't decide which way I wanted to cook it. I think my favorite was about 15 years ago. No, make that 10 years ago when I cooked one turkey traditional because people really wanted traditional. And then I cooked another turkey as a yellow mole. And I think it was way better than the traditional turkey. So that's where it starts. My first turkey, 33 years ago, I was in college at Hampshire College. I was an older student who had transferred from a community college. It was Massachusetts. I stayed on campus like, you know, maybe 10% of the students. And my one apartment mate friend who stayed on campus with me, we planned to do a a turkey dinner for nine or 10 people. Ironically, one of the nearby apartments we heard just a couple hours before we ate that somebody had broken into their house and stolen all the food out of their fridge, which first made them very angry. And they realized probably because that's all they stole, they were hungry people. And so they weren't too angry, but we sent them over a bunch of our turkey so they could enjoy it too. And I found out that strangely enough that one of those women was from Mendocino a little teeny town on the other side of the country where I was from. But it was really a sweet day because it was the first snow of the year and campus was empty and there was white, soft, quiet snow everywhere and we had a great turkey dinner and we didn't have Google. I don't remember much of how we cooked, but I think we got most of our recipes out of the joy of cooking. And I had a great turkey and I had a great time and I really loved it. And it meant a lot to be on campus with my friends then. And then I went on, cooked the next year, cooked the next year. And a few years later, I met a guy, fell in love with a guy who I'm going to put his name on the air because I hope he hears it because I've lost touch with him, Raul Matamoros Luna, a man from El Salvador who was working from San Francisco for Catholic Charities for a homeless shelter for LGBTQ youth. And he did a lot of great things for that shelter. And he cooked turkey for their Thanksgiving. He cooked, I think he said, nine turkeys. And he cooked them in a a style. He was one of the best cooks I've ever met. And the style he used was a kind of Oaxacan, southern Mexican version that he had adapted, I'm sure, and cooked the nine turkeys and brought one up to my friends and I, and we all enjoyed one of the best turkeys I've ever had. Together, he and I cooked a different turkey with a different southern Mexican recipe, which was really stunning. And that's where I learned that 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 turkey was a pre-Columbian dish. And in Nahuatl, which is the Aztec language, it was called Oaxalote, and one of the famous dishes of the Emperor Moctezuma was a turkey, giant turkey, stuffed with walnuts and Cornish game hens and chilies and other spices, which 
I can only imagine was stunning. But it was a great turkey. And then I broke up with Raul. Sadly, he joined the priesthood and I lost touch with him. And I kept making turkeys. But one of the defining things of my life, and I haven't heard many people talk about this, is um, being bulimic. And you don't hear men talk about being bulimic very much. And you don't hear straight men talk about being bulimic at all. With myself being a bi queer man, I dealt with it for many, many years. And um, holidays were always both the hardest. And I, I, trigger warning, can't tell you the number of holidays and parties and Thanksgivings where I started off the day and ate too much before dinner, went to the bathroom, made myself throw up so that I could fit the delicious food that I had put in. Didn't tell anybody, brushed my teeth so nobody could smell the vomit on my breath. And then came back and ate and sometimes did it all again two hours later. And usually in the process during the cooking time, I would, you know, drink and take some shots while nobody was looking, even if it was 11 in the morning. And I would sneak out and smoke or smoke pot right in front of people and be really loaded all day and and somehow managed to blur myself through my, my purges. But somehow I still liked turkey. So a couple of years ago, it was a chosen family Thanksgiving dinner. It was the first time I had not tried to do it with family since I had become an adult. And we had friends and dogs, and we had five dogs the first night of the um, the week. We had lots of people staying at our house. We had incredible food. We had my ex and his husband and my best friend, best friend's sister. We really had a great dinner. I no longer was binging and purging. I was able to make it through the whole night without overdoing it. A few of us went to an AA meeting right at noon and presented, and we did not drink at all or use at all during the day, except sugar later in the evening. And we made it through till going to sleep without feeling miserably bloated. And the dogs were really happy because I developed a following of dogs that all remember me for the pieces of turkey that I gave them. So coming up to now, there's a lot. I was ambivalent about Thanksgiving, but my family is used to me throwing a political spin on anything or a sociocultural spin on anything. And I decided that I wasn't going to try to throw thanks-taking into this Thanksgiving. And I was all prepared for making turkey. And we decided to make two turkeys because there were going to be 15 or 16 people. And I did the brining method, which I learned a few years ago, which some people think is incredibly difficult. I've learned to do it quite easily and well. Yeah, and, and to take a little sidetrack into the issue of the number of turkeys that are killed every year and raised just for this massive holiday where every family in every town has to have one or two turkeys. And I have vegan friends and I have spent some time being a vegetarian and being a vegan and not feeling so bad about it that it is disturbing how many turkeys get killed. And it is disturbing that this massive concentration camp of large bird industry surrounds our one 
massive family holiday of gluttony. But it's not hard for me to imagine that I can love an animal and kill an animal because I do it all the time. Because I raise chickens and I love my chickens and I spoil them rotten. And then when I need to, I reach in and break their neck and kill them very humanely. I hope that the turkeys I eat are humanely killed. I I couldn't imagine how hard it would be to break the neck of a giant turkey with my hands while the turkey was live and flapping around. I don't think I could do it. But the, the vegans have a good point that this is a really wasteful thing and it's there's a lot of of horror involved and I have been mixed on this for a couple of years but I'm I try to put it at the back of my mind and enjoy my Thanksgiving turkey this year I almost raised turkeys for our own Thanksgiving bird but I didn't get around to it so we got a lot of chickens but no turkeys so comes to this turkey dinner and I'm making turkey in my sister's kitchen and my uh, related family, I won't even figure out how to explain this person, but this person is a lovely 80-year-old woman who said to me, she goes, oh, I've only cooked four turkeys in my life and it terrifies me and they've always been a disaster. And she went to explain all the ways she'd done it, all four ways she'd done it wrong and slunk off in shame. And I've heard you know, some podcasts about people cooking turkeys and how it, it it solidifies or destroys your position in a family if you do it right or wrong and brine these turkeys with spices and salt and sugar and some vinegar and did it a way I didn't normally do it, but it seemed like it was going to be really good. And the turkey came out and it just smelled strange to me. It didn't smell right. And the stuffing I made wasn't right either. It didn't smell good. Something smelled off. It was so weird that I thought maybe I was coming down with COVID and I was kind of disturbed because everybody had been coughing and we've all worried about it and you know it's COVID so you're everybody's on edge and we've been on edge for three years now and but it just wasn't right and people were telling me how delicious the turkey was. My mom who didn't feel the need to gush untruthfully it was like you know something this isn't my favorite turkey she didn't say it that way but i i was definitely not that into it i i felt kind of nauseated by the turkey and it looked really good the dogs loved it the two dogs who were running around got their treats and joined by the cult of chad's turkeydom but i was not crazy about it and I went over in my head what I had done wrong, and I wonder if it was wondered if it was just the karma that these turkeys were not going to be the best turkey because I had been so ambivalent about Thanksgiving and thanks taking. And then it came to dessert, and like I'd said more than once, like why can't we just have a pumpkin pie and leave it at that instead of having five desserts, which is just a real problem for a bulimic, an ex-bulimic, to have five desserts after you've already stuffed yourself on turkey and stuffing and everything else, but all the desserts were incredible, and I somehow managed to make it past all five desserts. I only ate little pieces of four of them without sending myself into a bulimic frenzy. But it was good. The desserts were great. I ended up not too full because the turkey wasn't so good. And now I'm done, and it's a couple days later, and I actually don't know if I'm ever going to make a turkey again. And there you have it. Chad Swimmer's story for 2022. 
Oh, yeah. A minor postscript. I've got to say that my gravy broke, which was really a matter of huge shame for me. And all I could think of was the scene for the movie The Menu, which you, if you have not seen it, go see it. Here's your broken emulsion, darling. You are listening to Pride Nation 101 on KZYXNZ. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Mendocino County and beyond. I did speak with a local kid for tonight's episode, but unfortunately that interview had to be cut short. However, I do think they still gave us plenty of words of wisdom. All right, I am here with Kay. Nice to meet you, Kay. How are you doing tonight? I, I'm sick. <laughs> I'm tired. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I've lived in Fort Bragg for close to six years now, and I have a really awesome dog. <laughs> How do you identify, and what are your pronouns? I would identify myself as trans and not straight. And my pronouns are they, them, and he, him. So what made you realize you were trans, and when did you realize you were trans? About a year after I moved here, just before starting ninth grade, I, I, was, I was officially exposed to other trans people, and I finally got the knowledge that, like, that was an option. And... Through careful consideration, <laughs> I realized that those things also applied to me. When did you come out publicly? I came out two years ago to friends because I realized that uh, it didn't matter who I was because I knew that they would always be supportive. And if they weren't, that meant that they weren't my friends anyway. And what inspired <laughs> you to come out? Just knowing that the people I would come out to would be really supportive and their feelings towards me wouldn't change. Uh, knowing that I'd still be the same person in their eyes, slightly different, obviously, but essentially the same person. What do your parents have to say about this? My parents didn't really care. They were super supportive, but they, they were just like, you're you and that's what matters. So when I first came out to them, Actually, I made I made my sister say it for me. <laughs> but we were all in the same room. And they were just essentially, again, you're you. And that'll never change. Uh, no matter how I identify, no matter what, what I want to be called or anything. Just, I'm me. And I'll, I'll always be their kid. Has that changed over the years? No, I wouldn't say it has. Uh... There's been some some bumps, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say the basics have changed at all with that statement. What are your goals for transitioning? To essentially make how I feel on the inside, how I see myself on the outside. I know that's probably what most people will say, but I think that's probably a, a pretty common goal because it you know, it's how most people want to feel. They want to present themselves how they see themselves. And do you plan on medically transitioning? I I plan to take hormones pretty soon in these coming months and eventually get top surgery. 
But with what's currently available, I wouldn't feel comfortable getting bottom surgery anytime soon. I think I'll, I'll wait and see for that one. How do you see yourself in your body in five years? I see myself not having to fear standing up straight in public because hopefully I would have gotten top surgery by then. So essentially I'd like to be able to confidently have good posture in public without having to worry about uh, being seen as a girl or too feminine by having a chest. I'd like to eventually also be able to grow some sort of facial hair, even if it's not a full beard or it's patchy or whatever. I would just like to have some form of facial hair. So you said you lived in Fort Bragg for six years. Did you go to the Fort Bragg school district? I did. I moved here for the whole, uh, my whole eighth grade year. So I was at the middle school. uh, And then I've gone through all four years of high school at the at the Fort Bragg High School. Did you ever face any kind of discrimination or bullying? I thought I would because I came from a much bigger school and there were there were more people that ultimately were not really okay with the idea of liking the same gender or not feeling at peace in your in your body. But fortunately, my expectations were not met. At this school district, uh, it was a lot kinder than my last one, and I feel like it was pretty safe to be who I felt as. I don't know if that grammatically made sense. My sister was the first one in my family to know her and her best friend, who I've known almost my entire life, as far back as I can remember. And they were super supportive, super awesome um, really asking me the big questions when I first told them. Uh, my sister wanted to know if I wanted to go on hormones. And that really made me think at the time, because my immediate answer wasn't a yes, I thought at the time I wouldn't go on hormones until I was 100% sure that that's what I wanted to do. So she made me really think about it and really think of what I wanted, what I wanted to do, what who I wanted to be. Like, who I wanted to be seen as. Ultimately, she was probably the most supportive person out of my entire family. Immediately picked up on the new name. Immediately picked up on the new pronouns. Immediately picked up on the new way I wanted to present myself. And fortunately, she grew up with a friend group that is also super supportive. So she didn't have to leave any friends behind. Because I know my sister... She would have had to cut out some friends if they weren't 100% okay with someone in her family not being cis or straight. I was kind of nervous to come out to both of my parents because my dad didn't really seem like the type of person to accept it. And he has been overall very accepting of me and how I present. There have been some hurdles There have been some troubles and there have been arguments, but ultimately I think he just loves me as his kid, even if he always doesn't say, even if he doesn't always say the right words. I know he means well, 
how about in terms of emotional support? Have your parents been providing you with enough emotional support during this journey? No. <laughs> not not at all. Um my my dad's views are very not my views. <laughs> and some of them are pretty harmful to me as a trans person. My mom sometimes tries to make excuses for it, like, that's how he grew up, that's the area he grew up in. But times are changing, it's time to get with it. I actually relate to a lot of what Kay said. My parents were not supportive at all. And that slowly changed over time, but it was really hard for a long time. I recently went to my old house and fished out a bunch of my journals. I used to write religiously, and flipping through these notebooks is so surreal. There's just pages and pages of questioning my sexuality and gender crises. And more so than that, there's a ton of descriptions of fights I had with my family. Quote, when I told my sister I was trans, she said to keep quiet because it'd be too much for our parents. When I told my mom, it was in the office of the school counselor. She made it about herself. I never told my dad. Instead, she whispered it to him in the kitchen while I stayed up in bed and tried to listen. Later on, he got more distant towards me and sometimes fought me on my future as his new son. My other sister, the one who I expected to be more accepting, did not provide any solace or guidance. End quote. Now, this whole mess of gender tangled with bisexuality tangled with newly developed anxiety ended up contributing to major mental health issues and myself i was struggling with internal homophobia and transphobia too which just made it worse it became so bad that i ended up needing medication and routine therapy and more intense of all i had to leave my home under cps and go into foster care i spent a very brief stint in the children's ward of a mental hospital and a quarter to a third of the kids there were transgender. Every single one of them told stories about their parents or guardians being absent or neglectful of their needs, or even mean and abusive, and that is not a coincidence. I also relate to some of what Chad said. I ended up developing disordered eating habits that I'm still fighting today. I felt ashamed for a while because I was a male dealing with these types of coping mechanisms, and it is not common for boys and men to talk about eating disorders. I don't think my parents could have prevented all of this, but my gosh, it would have been so much easier if they were on my side. I'd like to read you a short article from goodtherapy.com called Research Examines Parental Acceptance of Transgender Kids. Gender nonconforming children, including those who are agender, transgender, bigender, gender fluid, or have other identities, are often met with parental rejection. A new study presented at the annual meeting of the American Sociological Association explored the process through which parents may come to accept their gender nonconforming children. Researchers from the University of UC Davis followed 29 mothers and 7 fathers with gender nonconforming children. The study included 33 children between the ages of 5 and 16. 14 were trans girls, 9 were trans boys, and 10 were gender diverse boys. Parental acceptance of transgender kids is often a slow process, the study found. Parents were quicker to notice gender nonconformance in children designated male at birth than children designated female at birth. 
Defab children were more typically labeled tomboys when they did not conform to gender stereotypes. Parents of gender non-conforming boys often attempted to set limits on when and where their children could present as girls, fearing discrimination and bullying. Parents often explained these guidelines in terms of practical rules, such as the weather being too cold to wear a dress. Parents are more likely to eventually relax these rules when they realize how unhappy their children were, researchers found. Researchers also found many mothers play a vital role in advocating for their gender non-conforming children. They often will work to educate themselves on the subject, and many become experts on gender diversity to better identify resources for their children. Perhaps because more mothers than fathers participated in the study, researchers did not address whether fathers acted the same way. Research consistently points to the damaging effects of rejection and stigma on gender non-conforming kids. Half of transgender adolescents attempt suicide by their 20th birthdays, and 41% of transgender adults attempt suicide at some point in their lives. Harassment, isolation, and bullying all figure prominently in suicidal thoughts and actions. Statistics show transgender children whose parents reject them or try to fix them are especially vulnerable to mental health conditions such as depression as well as at a higher risk for suicide. I'd also like to read you something from the blog called JustPlainBeth.com. This is called Your Grief is Not About Your Child Being Transgender. I remember the day my therapist told me the feeling I was experiencing was grief. It was a few months after Leo came out, and I was staring out her office window watching it snow. The compassion on her face made me cry in those early days, so I would take a break from looking at her and look out the window. Most days it was snowing, which was a nice distraction. I whipped my head around and asked her to repeat it. We talked about grief for the rest of my visit. I didn't understand how I could be grieving. My child was still alive, after all. Grief was for after someone died, and while that was exactly how my heart felt, I knew it wasn't true and I felt like a smack in the face to my friends and family who have lost children even to think that way. So I told her as much. We talked about how my husband didn't even feel sad about Leo coming out for this exact reason. All grief is, she said, is sadness related to the loss of something. I stared at her for a few minutes, thinking about what she said. She talked more about what grief is and isn't, and about loss and endings. I half listened. I couldn't stop thinking about what she said about sadness and loss. She asked me how I felt about my son coming out, and I looked up. Sad, worried, heartbroken, she cut me off. Grief, she said. It's okay to grieve. You lost your daughter. I thought my sadness was about the loss of my daughter. It turns out it wasn't. It took me years of therapy and a lot of self-reflection to recognize that what I was grieving was a loss of the idea of having a daughter, and that was a dream that had started in my childhood. As the oldest daughter of four brothers, I always dreamed of having a sister. When my youngest brother was born, that dream died. Eventually, I replaced it with the dream of having a daughter one day. I lived with that dream for 18 and a half years, or so I thought. When Leo came out as transgender, that dream died. My body relived all the disappointment of learning my youngest brother was a boy and the pain of never having a sister. I grieved more than just the loss of my daughter. I mourned the sister I never had and the childhood I always wanted. My grief was multifaceted and layered and about me, not my child. That realization was not easy to come by. It took a lot of work to get to that place. Uncovering the source of my sadness generated more grief, which gutted me.
I learned that setbacks are part of the healing process. We have to face what we are grieving to move forward. Your reason for the emotions you feel about your child coming out will be different from mine. I can almost guarantee, however, that they have nothing to do with your child being transgender. You may not be able to see that. It took me nearly six years to get to that point. Give it time. Be patient with yourself. You may have sadness related to your child. It could be about the behavior since they have come out. This is especially true if you are the parent of a teen or young adult or older child. They may be treating you poorly or not including you in their transition. It may be that they are rejecting your support. Please recognize that this sadness stems from how your child is and not who they are. There is a difference. It's important to remember that your child's journey is their own, not yours. The best you can do is support your child in the best way you can while caring for yourself. Let yourself grieve. Do the work to get to the source, even if the journey is long. Give yourself grace. Be okay with being sad. I'm a big believer of going to therapy before you have children. I think my parents should have done it. I think a lot of parents around me should have done it. I think you should go to therapy even if you don't have children. I think you should go to therapy for fun. I hope more and more people start to get to the root of their issues and their sadness and their emotions before taking it out on people. Because that's really most of what it is at the end of the day is internal problems that come out as anger towards others because you don't understand what they're going through. And that's upsetting to think about. See, all that seems obvious to me because I lived it. And a lot of that seems obvious to nearly any transgender kid because this is what they're going to be experiencing too. So if you are parenting a newly out transgender kid or if you know anybody in your family who is questioning their gender or even their sexuality... Just show them you're there for them. Show them a little bit of love. Give them your support. Give them your ear. Wrap your arm around them. Tell them you're there for them. And don't let them forget it. Earlier I said that the interview with Kay had been cut short. But that means we had enough time for a surprise interview with Jennifer Sukney. If you remember her, she was here on a previous episode and spoke to us about marriage equality. If you've been paying attention to the news, the Senate just passed, just barely passed the historic respect for marriage act and something that's making chad go bonkers 12 republicans even voted for it so the three of us hopped on a google meet and ended up having a nice conversation for those just now joining us you were listening to pride nation 101 queer stories music opinions and lives from mendocino county and beyond on kzyx and z so i'm here with jennifer sukney and chad swimmer thank you both for joining me tonight how are you two doing? Doing well. So, Jennifer, you've been on the show with us before, and yes. we have you here again to talk to you about the historic Respect for Marriage Act bill that just passed through the Senate with 12 Republicans voting for it. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I've had a number of different thoughts. Part of me is disappointed because it doesn't keep marriage equality for all. It leaves it up to the states to re- whether they're going to allow people to get married or not. And so that's still discrimination. I'm grateful to it for the fact that it will protect those that are married already. It also protects a group that I hadn't even realized weren't protected. I believe it's interracial marriage that it also covers. 
the idea that they would overturn the case that allows marriage equality for all across the country and it forces states to recognize it and acknowledge it is pretty horrifying. One of the reasons that we worked for marriage equality was because one, there's 1,038 civil rights that come with the word marriage. It was for a long time where if you had a couple that had been, they could have been together for 50, 60 years, they could be domestic partners, they could have had whatever other arrangements. And if one of them was in a state that didn't recognize it and was in a car accident, the other person was not allowed to see them or to make any decisions on their behalf. Families that hadn't talked to the person in 20, 30 years suddenly had all the rights. And that's pretty horrifying. What seems clear in this decision is that if somebody comes, for example, from California and goes to a state where they don't allow marriage equality, they still have to recognize that the couple is married if they've been married in another state. So hopefully that cannot happen again. Why do you prefer to call it marriage equality and not just gay marriage? Because marriage equality means that everybody has the right to get married to the person of their choice. It makes us separate. It suddenly, we're not the same as everybody else because they're specifying it's for gay people. Why would you need to recognize it if if we're equal or call it gay marriage if we're equal? That's a very excellent way to put it, actually. So you've also mentioned before that this bill also legalizes interracial marriage. Well, it, it was put in place in terms of the, the Loving case that came up before the court a long time back. So I'm not quite sure why they'd be looking at it again. But for whatever reason, I don't know if Loving made it official in every single state or what the language was behind it. But yeah, I was surprised to see that. One other question was if you could trace for us the history of the struggle for marriage equality and your struggle and your history of advocacy. People were already working on it in the 1990s and probably before that. I got involved with it in 2004. Actually, my ex and I got married three times. The first time was by one of my old professors who became a female priest in the Thomasine Catholic Church and We met at a friend's house in Oakland, and she married us with our witnesses there. And it's recorded in their books. Whether they knew it or not, I have no clue. It still wasn't official. We got married the second time in San Francisco in 2004. Um, We went down the first time on Valentine's Day. Um, We got down there and were told that there was no way we were going to get in that day, so we went and soothed our wounds down in North Beach with some really good Italian food. Came back home and then went down again on the 19th. Uh, Got there at five in the morning, something like that. Picked my son up in Sonoma County. Um, We went down and we got married in the rotunda of City Hall in San Francisco. And after that, they had an exhibit of the pictures that they took of people getting married. And there was a, a, an event in San Francisco that we went to. And another couple by the name of Molly McKay and Davina Katulski, who had been working on it way longer than we did, came up and were talking to us. And Molly, is, she's a, a very good attorney. She, she would go throughout the country on law cases that she had to for her, her um, company. And every time she flew, she wore a wedding dress. 
And the reason she did that was it started conversation. Wow. And it gave people the opportunity to be supporters rather than people saying, no, 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 no. Molly also had this way of looking at you where she asked us, how would you like to start a marriage equality chapter in Mendocino County? And you kind of look at her and she's so personable that you go, okay. It, it was, she's amazing. Anyway, we started working with marriage equality. We went every year on Valentine's Day to the county clerk's office and asked if we could get a marriage license and we're told no each time. And then when it finally became legal in 2017 or 2018, the county clerk called me and asked if we wanted to be the first ones to get married in the county. And so we were. Oh, that's beautiful. Unfortunately, it didn't last, but that's okay. We were both so involved with what we were working on, we kind of lost track of taking care of the actual marriage. So. But we're still friends and we get along and support one another. I actually wanted to um, go to a point that you made by email to us that was really surprising that the Mormon church supported this bill. They did. That absolutely surprised me. And I'm delighted to hear that, that they did that. There were a lot of Mormons that supported us previously. And those people were excommunicated by their church. And somewhere along the way, they became open to maybe just to love and the idea that we weren't hurting anybody. We were just being like everybody else. And they have come around and they support it now. I didn't think I'd ever live to see that day. So one of the other questions we had is, what do you think the next step for freedom or in the fight is? What bothers me is all of the white pride people the ones who hate everybody who's different from them, the ones who did the riot on the Capitol on January 6th, a couple of years ago, what they smacks too strongly, even using Hitler's Heil sign of the whole World War II. So they had the Jewish people in concentration camps and murdered six million people altogether. The Jewish people wore a Jewish star on an armband if you were a gay man, you wore a pink triangle so everybody knew. If you were a lesbian, you wore a black triangle, which was the same one that they gave to criminals. Oh, I didn't know that part. Wow. The fear that I have had, and I'm not the only one that has had this, is that with all the hate that had been happening prior to Biden getting in, and some of it continuing, is that they would start putting us in camps here. Kind of like the internment camps that the Japanese were in during the Second World War. So I'm glad to see that things are changing and that there's movement and I'm feeling optimistic. And all we can keep doing is talking and telling our stories and, and, and showing people that we're just like everybody else. Yeah, you yeah. can look at history and look at how it's repeated itself and look at how people were either shut up or weren't speaking up and that has happened over and over again so if we just the very least Absolutely. we do is keep talking about this Absolutely. and that goes for the racial issues that goes for all of it it goes for the missing and, and murdered Native American women it, all of it we've got to keep talking then a lot of the times it's just this personal connection that can break through the hate that 
I had an experience recently that I, I play in a band with a person with the two of us are queer, different queer, but queer. And the head waitress at the place who hired us and kept hiring us back, I had always thought I was a pretty extreme right winger. And she was very nice to us and said, oh, yeah, we love having you here. And we're not prejudiced. And I was just surprised. And I was hoping that we had helped open her eyes. And I think that these people's hate is just, as we all know, it's just ignorance. And when they meet people who are decent people, hopefully it helps cut through their fog. Yeah, that's all we can hope for, really. We can't really beat them into it. No, that would be fine, and that doesn't work. They people like that I've tried with people like us in the past, but that doesn't work either. No <laughs> one's wins. Do you want to talk about the Willett School Board? I would love to talk about the Willett School Board, but the story starts before that because I'm a member of the Willett's Rotary, and as a member of the Rotary, we have to put on a presentation once or twice a year. I decided. Willits has the only gay-straight alliance at the high school that's left in our county. We used to have one in Ukiah, and the gal that ran that one retired. And so I spoke with the teacher who's in charge of the gay-straight alliance. She's an ally, and asked if she would come and talk to the Rotary people at a meeting, and she did. And they received it very, very well. They help out with things, and I was hoping that if, if they needed money to do some kind of a project, that they, that might happen then if they knew about the GSA. After the, the meeting, we were talking, and she said to me, if you really want to help the kids, why don't you run for the school board? And I thought, huh, I'm retired. I volunteer at the hospital two mornings a week, and I have time in my schedule. If I expect kids that are LGBT to be able to live their honest, true lives, then I better demonstrate that I'm doing the same thing and set an example. And I found out some interesting information. If I'm getting the numbers right, there's 99,000 school board members in the country. Of that, there are 99 that identify as LGBTQ. Of that number, there are 22 in the state of California. So if I had the opportunity, number 23 in the state, how do you resist that? I'm just kidding. But so I did run and I'm still waiting to um, find out the re official results. I think I have a chance of, of being on the board. Um, I'm looking forward to it if it works out. And I think I could bring a lot to the board because of my background. Yeah, you seem like a very, very intelligent person. I bet you have a lot to bring. Well, thank you. Sure. And you were a social worker for many years, right? I was a social worker with Child Protective Services for 28 years. Yeah. So you know kids. That's good. I, and I also taught school for two years before that. Oh, even better. <laughs> I had a bilingual fourth grade the first year and a bilingual third grade the second. They were amazing children. I don't know if I should, if I hate to say this or not, but you almost have convinced me that I should be running for the school board. <laughs> that brings me to the question that, you know, it seems like school boards have become a real flashpoint in this country. How has this happened? I, I really don't know enough to talk about it. But it's being used against us. 
Yes. Yeah. The Fort Bragg school board is dealing with a lot right now. Fort Bragg High School and Middle School are the last two schools in California named after a Confederate general. A Confederate. Oh, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, last question I have is what is your favorite song at the moment? It's got to be some of the pieces from the Ballad of the Brown King. And I can't tell you in particular what they are, but the way it's written, it's just the, the music itself is magical. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for coming back on, too. I really, really appreciate it. And I bet Chad does, too. Even if you can't hear me. <laughs> A last-minute update for the podcast. Jennifer Sookney won the race for the Willett School Board. Yeah, go Jennifer. Uh, which one of you listeners is next to run? Make it 101 LGBTQ school board members nationwide. Obviously not nearly enough. Before we wrap up, here's our list of resources for you. We have our local 24-7 crisis line at one 838 Then we got the Trevor Project for text is 678678. Trevor Project for phone call is 1-866-488-7386. They also have an online chat option. Then we have the Self-Harm Prevention Line at 711-711. The National Suicide Hotline, which changed their number to 988. And new up here is NEDA, or NEDA, N-E-D-A, for eating disorders at 1-800-931-2237. I promise you do not have to suffer in silence. And we wish you a happy and safe holiday. We would like to thank you for spending the last hour with us, Chad Oliver Swimmer and Roland Corey Medina in Pride Nation 101. I'd like to say thank you to Kay and to Jennifer Sookney for joining me tonight. And I'll say thank you to Chad, too, for handing over the reins for this episode. We also want to thank our intern, Ravel Gautier, for some quality editing of the sounds you just have been listening to. And a shout out to Alicia Bales and Rich Colbertson of KZYX for helping to make this show happen. And, of course, the views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the staff or management of any station that airs Pride Nation 101. Only those of ourselves and our guests. See you next month. See you next month. <laughs>